Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Practicing good leadership is difficult enough in everyday situations. Practicing good leadership when you're literally under fire, whether from bullets or actual flames, truly puts your leadership skills to the test. My guest today has experienced both kinds of fire and not only lived to tell about it, but distilled out the lessons every man can learn from those life or death experiences. His name is Jason Bresler, and he's both a Marine combat veteran and a current firefighter for the New York City Fire Department. Bresler not only served in Iraq and Afghanistan and works in the New York Fire Department's Special Operations Command, but he's also the owner of a leadership consulting firm called Leadership Under Fire that teaches or organizations how to develop leaders that are able to make critical decisions and lead their teams to success when under pressure. Today on the show, Jason and I talk about his experience in Fallujah, what it takes to become a firefighter with the New York City Fire Department, and lessons on leadership and decision-making from battling both human enemies and hot flame. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash leadership under fire, where you can find links to resources we can delve deeper into this topic. Jason Bresler, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett, thanks for having me. Well, you got a really interesting uh, resume. You're a combat Marine. You are a firefighter for the New York Fire Department in their Special Operations Command. You also are leading up this organization called Leadership Under Fire, where you teach other organizations, civilians, law enforcement organizations, leadership, tactics, skills, mindsets that you've learned and acquired through your experience as a firefighter and a Marine. Um, and we'll get to leadership under fire, but let's let's talk about your your background first. Uh, you served as a U.S. Marine in combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and are still currently a major in the Marine Reserves. What lessons in leadership have you learned from being a Marine and from that experience? Well, the lessons that I learned, uh, the leadership lessons I learned in combat are uh, are, are many. Um, and I should probably first mention that the lessons I learned are lessons that I. Uh, you know, learn from my peers, uh, seasoned commanders who I worked for, and most significantly, the men under my charge um, who were routinely assuming tremendous personal risk in incredibly lethal settings. And uh, I also learned a great deal from our Afghan and Iraqi counterparts um, who assumed the greatest uh, amount of risk while having the most at stake. And unfortunately, their contributions sometimes to the campaign received much less attention. But as it, relates, uh, as it relates to combat leadership lessons, there's, there's generally the four themes or four categories um, that I kind of connect them to that I think are the most, uh, where I learned the most significant lessons. Uh, one would be the art of art and science of decision-making, critical thinking and risk management. 
another area would be leadership development and uh, the imperative to continuously develop leaders regardless of rank. Another area would be uh, what we call human factors uh, and the overwhelming role that human factors, most notably the mental aspect, have in both performance and outcomes. And another uh, area would probably be uh, the critical importance of generating tempo in high, highly competitive, complex, and resource-limited environments. Um, more specifically, there are a few lessons that my Marines and I learned time and time again, and lessons that I think uh, or firmly believe transcend the battlefield. Um, and those would be that uh, technology. Uh, technology is helpful, but it has considerable limitations. And leaders in units that rely too heavily on technology for victory often experience uh, defeat. And as a Marine, and I, I think this is true for many Marine commanders, we look at the purpose of technology as being to enhance human performance, not necessarily uh, re replace it. Um, another lesson I learned uh, relates to the mental aspect of performance. And I firmly believe that the mental aspect of performance is all too often neglected. Um, a combat unit that possesses great technical and tactical skill and superior physical conditioning must still possess mental toughness to achieve success, as well as resilience in the face of loss or even on some occasions, catastrophic loss. Uh, mental toughness is really the, the product of will. And I like to say skill is great, but but will trumps skill and, and mindset certainly matters. Um, and last, a, a le another lesson I learned that I think is, uh, is invaluable is that training is imperative and it, it must be three things. It must be responsible in that it must not cause harm or injury um, to your troops, but at the same time, it must be relevant and, and realistic and it must be three-dimensional. And what I, what I mean by that is it, it must include tactical, physical, and mental aspects. Um, nearly everything we do in combat, uh, is nothing more than a series of basic actions, but those actions done under, under tremendous pressure. And one of the things that my team learned, particularly in Fallujah, and we had reaffirmed for us on several occasions is that regardless of how much you train and how many scenarios you train for, you inevitably find yourselves in situations that you have no SOP for or even a mental model for. And as frustrating as this can be, the bottom line is that a well-trained outfit um, that possesses unit cohesion will have the skills to mitigate the unanticipated predicaments. So they're just, uh, you know, a few lessons that I learned that I, th that were, um, certainly the true in combat and I think tr transcend the battlefield. Right. So it seems like, uh, some of the, the phrases and words you've been saying, it seems like you're highly, you're heavily influenced by John Boyd and his OODA loop. Would that be, if you talk about tempo and, uh, complex systems and unit cohesion, that's stuff that John Boyd talked about sure. you know, 50 I, years I, ago. The, um, I would can certainly consider myself, uh, a scholar, uh, a, a Boyd scholar. In, in recent years, I've had the good fortune of being mentored by uh, a Marine commander, um, retired Marine colonel by the name of Mike Wiley. Colonel Mike Wiley was uh, was one of Boyd's peers in the Marine Corps, and they, and they worked to bring reform um, to the Marine Corps. So I, I certainly am, uh, you know, a huge advocate and uh, of Boyd, and um, and think that his his work. You know it, it, the lessons that he that he learned and and, and sought to uh, to share with others.
And uh, that, that aspect, that, that mental toughness part really interests me. I mean, so you said that, you know, will trumps skill, but how do you, how do you train that? How do you develop that in someone? Is it, or is it something that's innate in somebody and you just have to pull it out of them? Or can you actually develop that? No, I, I think it can be developed. And, you know, uh, it's kind of a cliche, but it, it starts with, it starts with your why and understanding your motivational factors and those motivational forces. And I think anytime you're part of a team and you're part of something bigger than your, your, yourself, um, you're going to be more likely to display uh, mental toughness, particularly when you're experiencing some, some level of suffering, whether it be um, from fatigue or, or hunger or, or sleep deprivation. And I got to borrow, you know, kind of Stu Smith's take on it. Stu is somebody who certainly had a lot of influence on me as a member of the Leadership Under Fire team. But, but, Stu breaks it down to something as simple as mental toughness is learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that every day, if you're doing things to make yourself in, uncomfortable in some form or fashion, you, you're con- consistently and continuously developing mental toughness that will pay dividends for you in, in combat. Yeah, or when you really need it. So um, you're a firefighter with the New York City Fire Department Special Operations Command. Uh, I'm curious, in what ways is the leadership style at the New York Fire Department and the Marines similar or different? Were a lot of things you picked up in the Marines were you able to transfer over to your career as a firefighter? Sure. Well, there's certainly some differences uh, between leadership in the, in the military and the fire department, um, but there are probably more similarities than differences. I think the fire department, similar to law enforcement, we can consider ourselves paramilitary organizations. And I think most significantly, leaders who are most respected in the fire department are several things. They're tactically competent, they're physically fit, they're, they're calm under fire, and um, equally significant, they're genuinely concerned with not only the capabilities of their firefighters under their charge, but the welfare of their firefighters under the, their charge. And I think in that regard, uh, the, the fire department is very similar to, to the military as it relates to uh, leadership. Gotcha. Um, and kind of speaking about the your career with with the military, you've actually started another organization called the Patty Brown Program, which helps military veterans transition to becoming firefighters. Um, What's the hardest part of that adjustment for veterans going from uh, military to uh, fire department? Or is there there not a problem with transition? Well, there's there's certainly some challenges. And I I think before we look specifically at or or speak specifically to the challenge from going to military to the fire department, we should talk just briefly about the challenge from going from the military to the civilian world. And I think that it's the case that many young warriors risk being disconnected um, from a mission and the camaraderie as they transition out of the military. Um, the young combat vet who transitions into the civilian world risk losing, he risks losing his sense of purpose. And history shows us that in many instances when that connection to something greater is lost, uh, the mental and emotional health of the vet suffers. Um, but the fire service, both in paid and volunteer aspects, offers a somewhat of a natural transition where the combat vet can put his unique skills and experiences to, to good use. Um, what we've seen and heard is that post 9-11 vets commonly indicate uh, interest in transitioning to the fire department or to law enforcement. And I don't think that's surprising given that the, the missions are uh, probably more similar than they are different. And the reality is that firefighting, the, the harsh reality though, is that firefighting jobs are hard to come by and getting hired by a fire department requires uh, a certain degree of insider baseball knowledge and navigation. So all of this said, 
we, we thought it appropriate to, to create a program, a nonprofit, um, named after the iconic legacy of Captain Patrick Brown, uh, who was a captain, New York City Fire Department captain who made the supreme sacrifice on 9-11 at the Trade Center. And prior to joining the New York City Fire Department in the 70s, Patty was an infantry Marine in Vietnam. And uh, Pat Brown faced a number, an array of obstacles and struggles upon his return, return to civilian life. And despite the trauma and the challenges, uh, Patty just inevitably found ways to serve, lead, and mentor, displaying great courage and, and strength and uh, resilience. So we thought it really fitting to name this program or a program that strives to assist veterans navigating through the difficult and stressful process of transitioning after um, someone as uh, iconic as, as Patty Brown. Right. So what your program does is just help them navigate through all the hoops that are that it, and the difficulties that it is to get an acquired job in firefighting. Yeah, the, probably one of the more important aspects of the program is that a vet will come to us. Um, let's just say he he's uh, if he's in the army. He's at Fort Bragg. He's looking to leave the army, and he's interested in becoming a professional firefighter somewhere. He'll contact us, and our program manager will work to identify what region he's potentially interested in, and then we'll link him up with a mentor, um, a Patty Brown mentor. And that mentor is someone who was previously in the military, likely served in combat, and they've already gone through the transition. And they kind of know the ins and outs, and they also understand some of the nuances and uh, intricacies of, of getting hired by fire departments because at times it's it's daunting and, and pretty challenging. And that mentor will help that young vet or that transitioning vet um, through that process. And that's probably the the mentoring aspect is is by far the most significant, uh, you know, the most critical element of the Patty Brown program. So I, I know a lot of guys dream of becoming a firefighter, particularly for the New York Fire Department. Uh, but it's a tough, tough gig to land. Uh, what what qualities do successful candidates for the job possess? So I, I think there's probably a lot of ways to answer this question um, because the, re the reality is that there's a lot of qualities that will lead a candidate to success in the fire department. And um, a, lo a lot of these uh, traits, uh, not surprisingly, are probably consistent with what leads someone to, to be successful in the military. But a person who wants to join the FDNY and be, uh, be successful absolutely must be a team player. Um, he or she must also be physically fit and possess an aptitude to learn a wide variety of tactical skills and hone them so that they can be executed under, under pressure um, in a team, team setting. And a successful person will be dedicated to lifelong learning, learning and teaching every day, ultimately to continue to strengthen the, the self and, and team. Um, there are you know, a number of attributes that we could discuss, but I really think that a resilient, positive attitude is the biggest key. If you want to be a firefighter and have um, you just have to have a correct view of service and sacrifice and kind of like what your role is in that organization as it relates to the organization, you know, somewhat of an altruistic um, approach. And you have to have that foundation. Um, and I think coming in an organization, understanding, you know, understanding your why, if you understand your why and you have that foundation, then you're much more likely to be committed to, to physical fitness the types of learning and practicing skills over the course of your career that's going to make you successful. Um, our our job, you know, firefighting, New York City and and beyond has an operational tempo, and the, and the career has demands that can be really tough sometimes. And some of the emergencies that we respond to, and the types of fires and emergency events are only increasing in complexity. And uh, but I think having a positive mental attitude, attitude, understanding um, your why 
really helps an individual to be effective and dependable part of the team. And but but ultimately, I would probably conclude by saying that the traits and skills that make us a successful firefighter are generally predicated on uh, on having the right attitude. Right. And even um, among those who get selected for the department, are there things that younger guys new to the job new to the job struggle with? Um, yeah, there's there's certainly things that guys struggle with. Uh, it, and like I said earlier, similar as it, it is to the military, there's certainly differences. Um, one of the great things about the fire service is, or, you know, for starters, is it's, it's steeped in tremendous tradition. And one of the best things about the fire service is that junior guys, um, you know, particularly places like the New York city fire department are extremely deferential to senior guys. And, you know, this generally is a good thing. Um, of course there's sometimes where this dynamic, uh, some, somewhat parochial is not ideal because departments resist change. Um, sometimes even when it's in their best interests, but, but generally the tradition is what makes the fire service special and unique, but guys and gals who are entering RX kind of need to know this up front. Um, cause ultimately it takes time to earn the respect of, of senior members. And some of the things that we communicate to guys in the Patty Brown program or vets that we mentor is, is, you know, we don't really, it doesn't really matter that you, what you did prior to joining the fire department, you could have been a silver star recipient or division one all American. And it, it doesn't really matter to most guys when you walk into the fire your first day, um, what matters is your willingness and effort to establish yourself as a capable firefighters, as a, as a capable firefighter. Firefighters and fire officers uh, are, are confident, but they are also equally humble. Even guys, you know, guys with 35 years in the business, some of the guys I work with um, possess a tremendous amount of humility because they know that firefighting has, quickly has a way of humbling you. Yeah. So don't have a chip on your shoulder too much of a one. <laughs> no sense of entitlement, not welcome here. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, in addition to being a firefighter, you, you also, as we said earlier, you have this, uh, leader development course called leadership under fighter fire, where you take the lessons you learned in combat and teach them to organizations, um, like in the areas of business or sports. So, I mean, what is, what does, uh, the leader development course look like at leadership under fire? Well, it, much of it's based on um, things that that I and, and members of my team and the Marines I served with learned uh, in combat, specifically in Fallujah at the at the height of the insurgency. And uh, we we came back and we spent a few we- weeks and months and probably even years reflecting on our experiences there and our lessons learned. Many of which were, um, quite frankly, counterintuitive. And we sat down and we said, you know what? A lot of these have relevance. Um, you know, they transcend just the battlefield and they have a lot of value in all walks of life, business, finance, certainly firefighting, law enforcement, sports. Um, so that's why we, we named the, uh, the concept uh, leadership under fire and it's, it's team based, but in some instances, what we find is that folks in business sports or even the fire service are uncomfortable with a leadership philosophy that was developed in combat. But here's what we communicate to them. Here's the bottom line, whether you're a leader in business, uh, or finance sports or the fire department, you're managing resources in a time competitive environment where there's a tremendous amount of pervasive amounts of uncertainty, risk, uh, fluidity, uh, friction, competition, and, and most significantly the human factor and at leadership under fire. We firmly believe that successful leaders are those leaders who are capable of thriving in uncertain and dynamic competitive environments. Um, one of the things that combat reaffirmed for me time and time again, was that the best leaders were those who were not 
just tactically competent, but those who were physically fit, mentally tough, and most significantly, morally fit. And I think Leadership Under Fire, we, we really work to continue to prepare leaders um, and organizations for the moral, physical, and mental rigors critical to peak performance and mission-oriented leadership in highly competitive settings. And you can make the argument that, uh, that there's, there's value in this in, in any trade or industry. Right. So let's talk about the, this mission-oriented leadership. Um, I mean, what does that look like? Is, just having, is that just like having the why of why you're doing what you're doing? Well, I, I certainly think that's a key component. Um, I, I think any leader needs to understand the why. And, and what we're starting to see now is something that the Marine Corps probably recognized a few years ago, compliments of folks like Colonel Wiley and, and John Boyd, is that folks all ultimately need to understand the, the why and the what and how will naturally follow, particularly in instances where there's a breakdown in communication. But as it relates to mission-oriented uh, leadership, um, what I view mission-oriented leadership as ultimately the willingness and desire of leaders on the part of leaders to prioritize mission accomplishment and the welfare of their um, subordinates over their own self, self-interest. So most military units, even especially the, the good ones, um, even in combat, prioritize accomplishing the mission over self-preservation. And I think that mission-focused leadership is a commitment to ensuring that your priorities as a leader are consistent with the explicit mission of your organization. Um, you, you know, uh, as being a member of the Leadership Under Fire, fire team, uh, I've had the good fortune of speaking to firefighters and fire officers around the country. And one of the first questions that I ask fire officers is, what is your primary responsibility as a fire officer, as a fire lieutenant, as a fire captain? And surprisingly, an overwhelming majority of them tell me that they think they what they think they're supposed to say uh, ensuring the welfare of, of my men or my troops or my subordinates. And it, it's certainly a noble response, but the bottom line is it's not really consistent with the mission statement of the fire service, which explicitly states that we serve to protect uh, the lives, property um, of our, the lives and property of our, of our citizenry. So mission oriented leadership has, I, I firmly believe that has more influence on performance and outcomes than any other factor. Um, and it, you know, even in whether it be combat or firefighting or law enforcement, that safe and favorable outcomes are not the product of risk aversion or rigid command and control, um, you, you know, the, these types of things, but rather the product of doing mission-oriented types of things, the right things at the right times for the right reasons um, with mutual trust, you know, between the commander um, and his subordinates. And it, uh, so, so that, that to me is what leaders, uh, mission-oriented leadership is, Brett. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. 
Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, and how do you convey that mission to your subordinates, right? I mean, I think a lot of people who are in leadership positions, like they'll come up with some fantastic vision. But the hard part is helping, getting others to catch that vision as, as well. So what do you do to help people get the why, get the mission of what you're trying to do? I, I mean, honestly, it, it's not a, you just need to talk about it. And you need to talk about it consistently. And everything that you do, you need to be able to connect back. Everything you do organizationally and everything that you, you know, your folks are doing individually or in smaller teams, 
it, you need to be able to tie it back to, to the mission. Um, something as simple as I was talking to a mental performance coach recently, he was talking about bringing some cultural um, change or, or seeking to enhance the quality of performance of a particular organization. And he said that he had surveyed his folks and said, sat down with all of them individually and said, what does it mean for you to be, a, what does it mean for you to be in this organization? What does this organization mean to you? Like when you think of this organization, what, what, what does it convey? And he said, he asked like 50 different folks and he got 50 different re responses. Um, you know, that, that's certainly problematic where I think if you, you, you were to come to my files in Brooklyn, you were asked the guys individually, Hey, what does it mean to be a member of, of this rescue company? What does it mean to be a member of the New York city fire department? By and large, they may use different language. Um, and, and there may be some semantics, but, but I think ultimately they're really going to convey the same things to you. And I think that that, that display or that communication reaffirms that there's, there's a strong commitment to, uh, to mission oriented, um, goals and, and mission oriented teamwork and mission oriented leadership. And, uh, you talk a lot about thinking critically and making decisions. That's an important aspect of leadership, but doing so in a competitive pressure filled environment where things are constantly changing is hard. So how do you get better at making decisions when the pressure's on, when you're under fire, uh, so to speak? Sure. That, that's a great question, Brett. And certainly, um, you know, a timeless question because the fact is even uh, the, the military units that have seen combat the most probably spend much more time training than they actually um, find themselves in combat. But one of the first things that we, we try to do or try to impart to leaders is a better understanding of how they actually make decisions. And what we find is that many folks think they make decisions in a very rational, methodical fashion um, in a high pressure situation, this however isn't necessarily the case and science, namely psychology and, and to some extent neuroscience suggests that our brain has two modes of decision making, um, which any of your, your, you know, yourself or any of your readers that have read Kahneman are familiar with, but you know, these system one and system two models or what some refer to as hot and cold system one, of course, being the primary mode when we're in a high pressure situation and the science suggests that decisions are based more on intuition, experience and training the deliberate and, uh, analytical process. Um, ideally we, we, we build a large file cabinet experientially. Uh, but the fact is at the end of the day, even the most motivated firefighter or Marine can't really control the quality of real world activity. Um, but he can control how many, how much time he spends physically training and thinking about performing under fire. And, uh, I think like yourself and so much of your audience, I uh, consider myself to be an avid reader and what leading scholars are telling us is consistent with what great leaders have, all, have always intuitively known, um, that reading and thinking about scenarios, particularly scenarios that we haven't experienced firsthand, but possibly are likely to experience, creates a mental model that will be then useful when we're making decisions under, under stress. And uh, I would probably be amiss if I didn't reference a quote from perhaps one of the greatest war fighters um, in the Marine Corps in certainly modern history, and that's General James Mattis um, kind of re reaffirms even just the value of, of reading and the influence it has on our decision-making capabilities is that thanks to my reading, General Mattis said, thanks to my reading, I've never been caught flat-footed by any situation. It certainly doesn't give me all the answers, but it lights what is often a dark path ahead. And I think that that mindset, um, you know, certainly serves to to prepare leaders to make decisions in, in stressful environments. Right. So fill that that file cabinet with mental models as many as you can, 
by reading, by doing, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you also talk a lot about tempo and generating tempo um, in highly competitive, complex, resource-limited environments. What do you mean by tempo? Is it how fast something's going or is it, I mean, I think Boyd was talked about tempo a bit and he was sort of, I don't know, it wasn't very clear about what he meant by what, what do you mean by tempo and why is it so important for winning the day? Right. So the challenge sometimes is to take something that Boyd understood and, and first try to understand it. And then the second challenge is to try to be able to integrate it into what we, what we do and make it practical. Um, and then probably the, the final challenge is then to communicate it to, uh, to others. So this certainly isn't going to be, um, temp, uh, you know, a, a view of tempo from the 30,000 or probably 40,000 Boyd, Boyd level. But, you know, as it relates to kind of leadership under fires take on, on tempo and how we view it relative to, to combat and firefighting, um, we view tempo really as being speed, speed relative to a problem set. So not necessarily speed for the sake of speed, but speed relative to the problem set or, or more, uh, probably more accurately, it's the ability to react faster than your opponent. And whether it's sports, combat, uh, law enforcement, firefighting, or business, if your team possesses the ability to develop a plan uh, and execute it faster than your adversary or your competition, you're much more likely to defeat your opponent. Uh, one of the best examples uh, of this in sports is the no-huddle offense, right? Or in baseball, a catcher calling his, his, uh, his own game. Um, that creating that pace that your opponent cannot necessarily keep pace with both physically and mentally, um, you know, has, has tremendous of effects, uh, on the battlefield, the most effective units frequently can employ what we call an implicit command, which is really, uh, to some extent, very similar to a no huddle offense where tactical actions are executed with a great deal of, in, without a great deal of instruction, um, because small leaders, uh, are trained to understand their commanders in intent. Right. And the, the mission, regardless of the circumstances. Um, and what's significant here is the commanders are willing to sacrifice control for initiative in the same way that a, a football coach uh, that's using a no huddle offense is willing to, to, to sacrifice some control, but for that greater initiative on the, on the field. And the biggest requirement for generating tempo really is, uh, is mutual trust, a dynamic of trust between a commander uh, and a, or a coach and his subordinates or players that favors rapid, rapid action over, over, uh, deliberate action. But tempo is, um, you know, it's, it's graduate level stuff in terms of actually, uh, not only understanding it, um, and its components, but being able to actually generate it in a highly competitive, uh, in, environment. One of the obstacles to generating tempo lies in the fact that I think that humans are really uncomfortable with un uncertainty and many leaders, uh, would often prefer you know, generally collect more information, develop a more ideal plan, wait for more resources and kind of enable the situation to develop, reducing their level of, um, of uncertainty. And there are certainly instances where having the patience to allow the situation to develop is prudent, but in many cases, the best approach is to, is to execute a plan and execute that plan rapidly in such fashion that your opponent can, cannot keep peace, uh, cannot keep, uh, pace with you. Right. And it seems like also, uh, mission mission-focused leadership would, would comes back into play here because you want everyone in order to make those moves on their own, they have to know the why of the mission. Right. And if they understand the why, and if they understand the mission, then you're ultimately able to use mission tactics where you're not, you know, the, the commander or the coach isn't communicating the what and how to his, 
to his folks, um, they're doing it without that, without that, that communication transaction. That saves tremendous time. And if you're doing that and your opponent isn't, you have a tremendous advantage. And that's why it's, it's not seed, speed for the sake of speed, but it's speed relative to the problem set or speed relative to your opponent. You don't need to be fast. You just need to be faster than your opponent. Well, one of the maxims you live by and you talk about on the site is becoming harder to kill. Uh, why should a leader who's not in the military, not a firefighter, why should, why should they focus on being harder to kill and what kinds of things make a man harder to kill? Yeah, gr- uh, great question, Brett. So I should probably start by um, mentioning kind of the origins of uh, this hard to kill cl- cliche or, or mantra um, and why we use it in leadership under fire, um, why we apply it to the fire department and why I think it has value beyond the, the fire department. But a few years ago, I returned to the New York City Fire Department following combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I began to think differently about some of the cliches that are very commonplace in, in, in the fire service. Um, one being be, be safe. You know, firefighters often tell their fellow firefighters at the end of a tour when they're going home, when guys are reporting in for work, hey, be, have a safe tour, be safe. Or some chiefs like the mantra, everyone goes home, meaning everyone, every firefighter goes home at the end of a tour. And, um, you know, certainly, these things come from from their heart and with noble intentions. Um, but what's happened is in recent decades, the, the fire service, the American fire service has embraced the culture of safety that at times, um, you know, that seeks to reduce the in, risk of injury and death to firefighters. And this is obviously certainly noble, uh, but the framework subsequently promotes several myths and fallacies at times, and it leaves subordinates uh, and, and kind of line officers sometimes confused as to what the mission is. Is the mission the one I'm supposed to accomplish explicitly or is it the mission me, me putting my, my folks and their welfare and my own interest first? Um, and there's sometimes a little bit of a, of a conflict, a moral conflict that has taken place in the fire service and the same is probably certain true, certainly true for, for law enforcement. Um, so the leadership under fire team then believed that making yourself hard to kill, which is a mantra we had used um, frequently in combat was much more appropriate and, and scientifically valid um, because similar to combat, the hard to kill paradigm promotes mission accomplishment while also seeking to enhance survivability or rather reducing risk to injury and death. And ultimately, there, there are five fundamentals of making yourself hard to kill um, and your troops hard to kill or your teammates hard to kill. Uh, and they are one instilled tactical discipline all right, and tactical discipline is understanding the consequences of your actions and inactions um, in an operational environment. Two would be develop brains with the basics. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, those, those guys are best, the best firefighters and, and the best combat operators generally are just very, very good at the basics, but being able to, to execute them under tremendous pressure. Um, the third fundamental would be understanding the operational environment and seeing the bigger picture. So even at the individual level when you're executing an action, you understand what the ramifications are as it relates to everyone else in your team or everyone else on the battlefield or everyone else on the fire ground or everyone else in your, uh, you know, in your, in your business. Um, another fundamental is conduct realistic and relevant training. I think I mentioned earlier, but it's this type of training needs to be three-dimensional. There needs to be a tactical and technical element, a physical element, and equally significant, uh, a mental element. And number five, the fifth fundamental would be just develop that that sense of mental toughness, develop mental toughness, learning to be uncomfortable. And I think you put those five things together and, and you're going to enhance your your level of survivability, whether it be on the battlefield, um, on the fire ground, at fires and emergencies, 
or or in business. You, you're going to be uh, you're going to be as we like to say, hard to kill. So, what's the connection between a leader's mental, moral, and physical abilities? I mean, what role does mental toughness play in physical, physically performing well under pressure, and vice versa? Well, as far as the connection between a leader's mental and moral and physical abilities, uh, the leadership under fire team, we as a team view performance, uh, of a, uh, the performance of a leader as a hierarchy comprised of four tiers. And if you look at those four tiers, the bottom tier is your fundamental skills. Those are your, your tactics, your techniques, your procedures. The second tier then is physical conditioning. Um, the stamina, the mobility, the agility, um, the endurance, all right, the third tier then represents mental toughness and mental toughness ranges from everything from, from being mentally tough to having um, developed mental skills to being a critical thinker. And then most significantly, the, the top tier of that hierarchy is, is more obligation. And what we think is that the best leaders, those who really create a legacy and are to be emulated, um, are those leaders who foster an appreciation for every tier of that performance hierarchy, ranging from the fundamentals uh, to the moral imperative, the moral obligation. Our team believes that using this performance hierarchy to sequence personal and professional development helps create better people and ultimately better people are, are better leaders. And when we talk about better people, you know, leadership on fire, we're not talking in general terms, but specific ones. We want to help build the leader who embodies and can articulate the values of moral and ethics and leadership. A leader is mentally strong, resilient, um, and a reflective critical thinker. And, uh, you know, the exciting thing about this today is what started in Fallujah 10 years ago has evolved and has evolved beyond the, the fire department. And we're doing this today with leaders in public safety, sports, and business. Let's go back to this, this, this moral aspect. Cause I think, I think people would see how you can develop physical fitness. You can put them on a physical regimen program. There's uh, you can teach better th- uh, mental models and how to think and make decisions better. But how do you, how do you develop a moral compass within a leader? What's the process look like there? Well, let me first start by saying that I believe that me, uh, leaders who are not morally fit um, or, or rather unable to analyze the ramifications of their decisions and actions from a moral perspective aren't leaders, but are merely managers. And my father, um, who's a retired fire chief, someone I look up to uh, immensely, likes to say, leader, managers do things right, but leaders do the right thing. And I, I believe, and the Leadership Under Fire team believes that moral fitness is demonstrated by doing the right things at the right times for the right reasons. All right. And that's certainly not an easy, certainly not an easy, easy task. Um, but similar to the same, you know, to the fashion in which leaders develop, uh, mental toughness and leaders develop technical skill and leaders develop physical fitness. Um, they must also actively develop, uh, moral fitness. And, you know, like I earlier, as it relates to how do you develop, how do you become a better decision maker under stress? you spend a lot of time thinking about it. And the more time you spend thinking about moral and ethical dilemmas in, in great scenarios, in great situations, whether you're a business leader, whether you're a fire chief, or whether you're a, a combat battlefield commander, um, I think you'll be much better prepared uh, to make the kind of decisions that are consistent with the leader, that the type of leader that you wanna be, and are consistent with what your expectation or, or your clients or your citizenry or your constituency expects from you. 
Well, Jason, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about Leadership Under Fire? Well, Brett, uh, for starters, we have a website, www.leadershipunderfire.com. Um, we also host a national conference each year that fe- features uh, accomplished leaders with wide-ranging operational experiences uh, from the battlefield, competitive sports, law enforcement, business, to fire service. And uh, our fifth annual conference is upcoming. It will be held in Columbus, Ohio in, in March 2017. And that's a great place to come and familiarize yourself with leadership under fire and find yourself surrounded by by like-minded folks. Fantastic. Well, Jason Bresler, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Brett, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. My guest today was Jason Bresler. He's the owner of Leadership Under Fire. You can find out more information about uh, what they do there at leadershipunderfire.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash leadershipunderfire, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your continued support. Give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. Thank you again. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.